The gospel reading this morning is from John chapter 6, 52 through 71, and this can be found on page 1060 in your pew Bible, and it is also the sermon text for today. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who, those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I can't remember what it is, but thanks be to God. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Good morning. Well, let's pray, because we have a lot of scripture to look at today. Jesus, we thank you that your word is comforting and sometimes jarring, but always it's comforting and jarring and alarming in order that we may come to you. Lord, draw us to you this morning. Draw our eyes to you. Turn our hearts to you. Strip away our pride and our arrogance. And Lord, I ask that you would use this sermon to, to change us, all of us. Amen. Uh, in his book, A Wounded Heart, Dan Allender says this about honesty. He, he, he talks about this in the chapter on healing, on the path to healing. 
And he's talking about this, this path to joy that is, this starts with honesty. He said, honesty is the commitment to see reality as it is. Without conscious distortion, minimization, or spiritualization. Honesty begins by admitting we are deceived and that we would rather construct a false world than face the bright, searing light of truth. End the quote there. Walking a path of brutal honesty requires humility and requires courage. The humility, at least we look at what, what Allender says here, the humility to, to be able to admit I'm wrong. The humility to be able to admit I've been deceived. And the courage to change. The courage to start moving in a different direction. See, sometimes the bright, searing light of truth is being blocked by our own prideful reasoning. And the only thing that can stir things up or even crack the hard shell of our hearts, our cold, hard hearts, sometimes, many times, I would say, we need a disruptive event. We need a, disrupt, a dis, disruptive event or disruptive words to strip away that which is blocking the light of truth to come in. Eugene Peterson, quoting another author by the name, uh, last name Kafka, says this, If a book we are reading does not wake us with a fist hammering on our skull, why then do we read it? And he's referring to, Peterson's referring to scripture here. A book must be like an ice axe to break the frozen sea within us. In other words, it should disrupt us. It should shake us. It should wake us up, is what he's saying, from our slumber. Jesus is the disruptor. Jesus in this passage here, which, which when you look at this passage, it's kind of hard to read this passage even today and look at it and not cringe a little bit by some of his words, huh? They're pretty harsh words. He was disrupting their reasoning. He's disrupting three things here that we're going to see. And, and we're looking at, I'm, I'm backing up a little bit to, to verse 41 because I want to, because I stopped at verse 40 last week. So I want to start at verse 41 and kind of go through the end. That's why I said we've got a lot of scripture to look at. But I'm going to, hopefully we'll, we'll get it done in time here and, and uh, not look at each verse, but look at what is happening in this passage. And what I see here as I look at this is more than anything, Jesus is disrupting the reasoning of the people. He's disrupting their religion and he's disrupting relationships. But he's doing it for a purpose. He's doing it with his mission to break through some of the hearts. And some of them harden. This narrative continues as a response of Jesus, or of the people, to Jesus. After he says, they came to him. Remember, they came to him wanting to make him king. They came to him wanting to be fed. They wanted to see him do things for them. And when he talked about being the bread of life, and he has a bread that will endure to eternal life, they said, give us this bread, we want it, we want it. And at one point they asked him in this passage, what must we do, what do we need to do to inherit eternal life? He says, believe. 
And after he says, I'm the bread of life, in verse 35, he goes on to say, I came down from heaven. I'm the true bread that came down from heaven. The Father sent me to be the bread of life for you. So that if you believe in me, if you just believe in me, you'll never die. And I'll raise you up on the last day. So, how do they respond? Well, verse 41 is where we're going to start. They responded by grumbling. You see that in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about it. In fact, you're going to see grumbling a few times in this passage. When we talk about the, the, the grumbling of, or, or the disrupting of reason, religion, and relationships, you're seeing grumbling in each part. One is grumbling, one is disputing, and the next time it's grumbling. So here the Jews are grumbling about him because, they said, I'm, because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they start disputing this grumbling. It's also the same grumbling, same word for grumbling that they were doing back in Exodus 16 when they were asking for manna because they were hungry and they were grumbling against God. The Jews were grumbling against the one who was providing and here they're doing the same thing. They are grumbling against the bread of life. They're grumbling and saying, how can he be the bread of life. How can he have come down from heaven? Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? This is ridiculous. He's just a man like you and me. He's human. Perhaps they're even digging at his character a little bit because of the family he came from. Their focus of the argument is how can Jesus be the one sent from heaven? How can he be the bread of life when he's merely human? Now, what's interesting here is you might be able to re uh, relate to that because, I mean, if somebody came and was talking like Jesus was, and, you know, that might be one of the things that, that, that you would say too. But don't forget, they saw some pretty amazing things that Jesus just did. I mean, the whole reason why they're seeking after him is because of what he did and what they heard about. They didn't just see him feed the 5,000. They ate the bread, but they also heard of the healings. And I'm sure there had to be some talk about him walking on the water. Some amazing things were going on. In fact, what's interesting is, is if we go back to chapter 3, remember Nicodemus came to him. Nicodemus came to him by night, and what was Nicodemus's first question to him? Jesus, or first statement to him? Jesus, everything you're doing, we know you're from God. We know. He says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. So you see, Nicodemus is coming and trying to find out about Jesus' divinity. And the people who have already experienced Jesus in so many ways and heard about the great miracles he's been doing are now saying, divinity, he's just a guy. There's no way he could be who he said. And then Jesus says this. Now, and by the way, when they're, when they're grumbling, there's a sense in their grumbling where they are kind of reasoning among themselves. That's why I use reasoning here. There, there's, there, there is a sense that they are arguing amongst each other. When they're grumbling, they're also talking to each other. I had, there, there had to be dif differing opinions here. And they're arguing, and they're reasoning, and they're trying to make sense of this. And then Jesus says this in, in verse 43, no one, so before, before we move on to 44, remember, he's already thrown at them the whole confusion about his nature. 
He's human, but he's doing divine works. He's already disrupting that in their reasoning. Now he says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, speaking of himself most likely. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And once again, he closes this with, I am the bread of life. Jesus is disrupting much in this statement. You see, first, he's stating what's true about God's sovereignty. Second, he's quoting the prophets. The prophets who the Jews revered. The prophets who the Jews looked to and, 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 and learned from and quoted against Jesus at times. And now he's telling them, if you come to me, nobody comes to me unless they are taught by what the prophets wrote. Nobody comes to me unless the God that you say you worship has taught you as well. Now there's more that's disruptive about this statement, isn't there? When Jesus says, nobody comes to, the fa- nobody comes to me unless the Father draws him, then you start thinking, well then, what does that have to do with me then? Do I have anything to do with my salvation? Do I have anything to do with coming to Jesus? That's something we have to deal with when we read something like this. What is Jesus saying about God here? What is Jesus saying about our ability? I would think that's probably a little disruptive for us to read as well. That Jesus is saying, anyone who comes to me, no one comes to me unless the Father, first of all, draws him. Well, understand, when Jesus is disrupting our reasoning here, he is stripping away all of what we hold dear. He's stripping away our pride to do everything on our own. He's saying, you understand, when, they're, when they are grumbling amongst themselves, they're reasoning amongst themselves, and he's saying, look, the reasoning and the arguments don't come from you. You can't argue your way to me. You can't reason your way to me. The only way you come to me is unless the Father enables you. That's what he says. There are different disputes about what this word draws mean. Does it mean that the Father forces us to him or does it mean that the Father attracts us to him? There There are different interpretations of that. So that's something that would be a good study this week for you. But nevertheless, what, God, what Jesus is saying is that God is sovereign in our salvation. That he is sovereign in our salvation. And what, 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 is, what can be very disruptive to our thinking here is that Scripture makes a strong case for both the sovereignty of God in our salvation and our free will in our salvation. Let me just give you a few. Deuteronomy 7, God says, I chose you. He tells the Israelites, he says, I chose you not because you were a greater nation, not because you were great, not because you were more in number, but because I loved you. That's what God says. He says, I chose you because I love you. Ephesians 1 and 2, Paul talks about us being chosen 
in Christ before the foundation of the world. And he talks about in, in chapter te- 2, he says, you were dead in your sins and you were made alive. Luther says, a dead man cannot come to Christ. He first has to be made alive by God. Paul, in, in Romans chapter 11, is a whole, a whole chapter on the sovereignty of God and his choosing Israel. He, he, he quotes, Jacob, I, I loved Esau, I hated and goes through this very confusing, very troubling, if you're reading it for the first time, of trying to understand what is God doing here. And the way Paul ends that, that chapter is this. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Paul says, It's too deep for me. I don't know what to do except to praise God and put my trust in him. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for him, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. But then you have verses where the same Paul will say this. First of all, I urge the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. He's saying this in 1 Timothy for kings, for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In Acts 26, they were praying to open the eyes, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Because your question may be, what about evangelism? How do we treat people who are unsaved? What do we do with this sovereignty of God, free will of man? We trust God in it is what we do, and we obey God in it is what we do. What I would ask is to maybe reflect on what you do believe about this. If, this, if you find this scripture offensive, to ask what you do believe about God's sovereignty, what you do believe about our role in salvation. But I will tell you also that Jesus is trying to strip our pride away from all of this in that we bow the knee to him. What he's telling us is you don't understand but God is sovereign. And the only way you come to him, the only way you come to me is if he gives you life. It's not brought on by me. It's not brought on by you or any of us. So we continue to evangelize. We continue to pray for the lost. Why? Because scripture calls us to. It was the same Jesus who said this in chapter 6 that prior to that said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him. The same one who says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. The same one who is calling all people to himself is calling us to do the same. To call all people to himself. And we should never, ever allow our theology to get in the way of evangelizing those around us. Because that is not in Scripture. That is not what Jesus teaches.
So Jesus goes from stripping away the pride of our reasoning and then moves on to verse 49 to stripping away the pride of our religion. The people say that, or he says this, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that the one may eat of it and not die. I am living, I am the living bread and came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now it gets a little weird. The Jews then disputed, grumbled among themselves. Here we go again. And what do they say? They say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? You know, we like a good metaphor, but when it goes against us, then we take it literally and make it sound foolish. And that's exactly what they're doing here. They're making Jesus sound foolish. They're deflecting the truth of what he's saying and using it literally to make an argument against what he's saying. Nicodemus kind of did this too. I don't think he did it maliciously, but I, you know, be born again? What do you mean? I'm supposed to, how, how does somebody pass through the womb again? Well, that of course was not what Jesus was talking about. And same thing here, and we'll see that. So Jesus said, verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Okay? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Does that feel a little uncomfortable again reading it? As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This last verse, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum, showing that he was teaching publicly. And he says this later when he's on trial for his crucifixion. Didn't I teach in the synagogues? Didn't I teach openly? He's dealing with their religion here. He's dealing with what it means to have eternal life, what it means to be working toward eternal life. Remember, they already asked him once, what's the work of God? He said, it's to believe in me. It's to believe in the one whom he sent. He's challenging, challenging them to take their eyes off the sign because what they're doing is they're referring back to the old manna, the sign Moses, the prophet, who wrote about this. And that's where their value was. And that's where they're saying, they're looking for a sign from Jesus. And they're saying, you know, our fathers ate manna from, from uh, the, the Moses that the, the Lord sent down. And Jesus said, they ate that and they died. But I, the bread of life, this is what he's saying, are who you should be eating. He's telling them to stop dwelling on the old manna and feed upon the true manna. So let's look at some other areas where this feeding is used. Back in Deuteronomy 8.3, God said, man shall not live on bread alone, but what? 
but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That he shall live on the eating, the consuming of the word of God. We see this in Psalm 19. Better, better, the, the word of God is better than honey. The law of the Lord is better than honey. And we see the, the prophet Ezekiel told to eat the scroll. I believe it's in chapter 3. I didn't write that, that one down. But also John himself, John the apostle in Revelation chapter 10, sought the angel. The angel gave him the scroll and said, eat this scroll. And he said, I ate it, and it was sweet to the taste, but bitter to my stomach. It's a metaphor for taking the word into themselves, not physically eating. And the whole point of what Jesus is saying throughout this passage is this. Verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. 47, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. What he's saying is whoever feeds upon the Son of Man, whoever feeds on this bread of life by consuming the word. Remember, John says in the very beginning of this, of this book, the word became flesh. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Eugene Peterson actually has a book called Eat This Book. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. But there's a quote here from a, a, a German theologian, Karl Barth. He said that we do not read this book in order to find out how to get God into our lives, to get him to participate in our lives. No, we open this book and we find that page after page. It takes us off guard, surprises us, and draws us into its reality, pulls us into part participation with God on his terms. That what Jesus is calling us to do by feeding on him is to consume, devour the word of God. Eugene Peterson likens it to the, his dog just getting a fresh, juicy bone and gnawing on it and licking it and just consuming it and staying with it. And he's saying that is the metaphor of us consuming the word of God, to be having it with us, to be meditating, it, uh, meditating upon it, to be devouring it, in order that we may have eternal life. What Jesus is saying is not that we are to be physically consuming anything for eternal life, but we are to be consuming the Son of God as the Word of God for eternal life. It is the Word of God that brings us life. The Jews were wondering, what should we do? What works should we do? What, what part of our religion is going to drive us closer to you? What is that gonna, what's going to give us eternal life? He says, to believe on me. And to believe on me is to consume yourself with me. Some will turn and, and, and say that this is, by the way, some will say that this is uh, referring to, Jesus is using bread of life passage to refer to the Lord's Supper. Um, 
that doesn't seem to be the case. John doesn't even include the Lord's Supper in his, in his gospel. But I like what D.A. Carson says in this. He says, John 6 does not directly speak of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, but it does explain or expose the true meaning of the Lord's Supper as clearly as any passage in Scripture. But what Jesus is doing is saying that we are to consume the bread of life that we may inherit eternal life. The Lord's Supper that we'll be, we'll be partaking of here soon is a demonstration, it's a sign and a seal, but it's also, show, it's also a way for us to take the bread itself and eat it. Remember, the, 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 the parallel here is, is the manna in the wilderness. The people were hungry, they needed life, they needed to live, and God gave them something that they could consume and live. What Jesus is saying is your soul is without life unless you have the bread of life. And I am that bread of life. Lastly, we get to, to verse 60 here. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Notice his disciples, ones who were following him. When many of them heard it, when they heard what he was saying, they were disrupted as well. Who can listen to this? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling, once again grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He said, you take offense at this? Think about when you see me back where I came, back from where I came. When you see me in all my glory. And then verse 63 says, it's the Spirit who gives life and the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. This is what he's saying. He's saying, to eat the, the flesh and to drink the blood is, is, is a metaphor for taking him in spiritually, for reading and devouring yourself with the, with, with, with the word of life, the bread of life. And he says, verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe, for he knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. In verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where would I go? And we believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered him, did I not choose you, the twelve? Jesus chose the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve who was going to betray him. The words of Jesus disrupting the status quo how many of these people were together? How many families might have been separated that day, do you think? How many friendships 
might have been broken that day. Because the words of Jesus are not only disrupting to our, our own reasoning, to our own religious works, but also to our relationships. I'll bet many of you have seen relationships broken off because of your faith in Christ. I bet you've gone, gone through relational struggles. But it's why Paul says that we're not to be unequally yoked because you can't, you can't have someone who is joined to Christ with someone who is not in a marriage relationship. And that's why he calls us to be yoked with those who are joined to Christ. But think about Jesus' words also when he said, I, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. I came to bring father against son and daughter against mother. And, and he came because he knew his gospel would be disruptive. It would not only disrupt our own hearts, but it was going to disrupt the relationships of the world. And Jesus calls to his disciples, and he said, are you going to leave as well? And what I love about Peter's answer is, it almost sounds like, I, I don't know everything. It still doesn't make sense. Yes, this was troubling, but I don't know where else I would go because you are the Holy One of God. And I think that's the point. The point is that Jesus is calling us to the one thing, the most central thing of the gospel, and that is himself. He's not calling us to understand everything. He's not calling us to be at peace with all of the difficult theology that we, that we read about in scriptures. He's not even calling us to know it all. But he is calling us to know him. He's calling us to follow him. To devour him as we devour the food that we eat to survive. He's calling on us to devour him as well. To devour his word as a word that is the only source of eternal life. He's calling us to devour those things. And then he's calling us to trust him. To trust him for who he is. To believe and trust and that requires great humility because we have to strip away everything that we are about ourselves. All of our brains, all of our experience, all of our skills and talents and gifts, none of those things will get you to Christ, not one. Not one of those things will make you righteous. And that's the point of what Jesus is saying. It's only by the work of God. And then we are brought to eternal life only by the work of Christ. To believe in him and to follow him. Let's do that. Amen. Jesus, thank you for, your, for these words. Hard as they are, Lord, it's... it's uh, struggle for us to read them sometimes it's a struggle for us to go through your word and understand all of these things but lord we we ask that you would help us to take those first steps if there's anyone here that doesn't know you lord i pray that they would be willing to take the first step and to come to believe in you as the only source of eternal life
And Lord, as a church, that we would help them to grow. And you would fill them with the confidence that comes from knowing you. Do that, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.